Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. I'm very excited today to be talking to Dom Busco from a very exciting project called Wild Ken Hill. And Wild Ken Hill is an um, area of farmland in Norfolk, 1500 acres, um, being returned to nature as an exciting, relatively new rewilding project. Um, so Dom, thanks very much for joining me. It's, it's definitely something I'm massively passionate about and very excited about this episode. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you and to uh, you know share what we're doing um, on, on our journey, which is which we're all really excited about. Yeah, so um, rewilding in general, I think we've talked about it before a little bit on on social media and things, and and your website. Um, I have to say, as a credit to you, it's absolutely fantastic in its design and almost simplicity of explaining what rewilding is. But people involved in the rewilding community would kind of uh, say that. Rewilding has benefits for people, wildlife, and in broader terms, the climate as well. Is that kind of what drew you into it, or what was your main reason for um, for it being kind of an attractive um, project for you? Well, I think you know the history of our uh, you know our operation has always been quite conservation focused, and yeah. you know what we realised was you know looking nationally. Uh, you know, the initiatives that were being undertaken around the country and the types of initiatives that we were taking back home just weren't quite good enough. And we wanted to take that next radical step to try and ensure that we can look after the biodiversity that we have on site and and actually, you know, welcome back, um, you know, other aspects that that we don't have. And I think that, that was a really key motivation for us whether it was going to be a rewilding or another approach, that was a sort of a second order question. Um, and personally, you know, when I when I first started to read up and hear about rewilding, it was all those other like amazing things about it. And I almost had quite an emotional response to, you know, the idea of letting nature back in, the idea of, you know, people and local communities being being more involved, the idea about it being very process focused and not about... Yeah outputs and it was it was it was almost like a sort of uh you know a real eureka moment where all this time and we were guilty of it too you know just spent time like counting and counting individual species and not thinking about the underlying processes that were missing and that's what we really needed to focus on and then in a way and then the species will come afterwards right right exactly um yeah so that was that was captivating and i think uh, that, that really caught the imagination, um, and uh, I think the the other you know, equally important thing there is is, is what rewilding can do uh, for the climate, and that, that's something up, you know, the climate ch- climate change mitigation side that I, I've always been passionate about, and you know, I've involved from time to time in with other work that I've been involved in, and there's a really yeah. compelling story about what rewilding can do uh, to help us mitigate global warming. Um, so that, that was that was really key, and then I think the the second thing, the second big thing is the, you know, is is the commercial side, and a lot of farms in the UK are not looking at a great 
you know, five to 10 year horizon. Uh, mm. Reports are saying, you know, up to 50% of farmers could uh, face bankruptcy uh, as we leave the EU and we, we have much fewer payments coming our way from the, the common agricultural policy and eventually no payments and, you know, a great deal of uncertainty as to what will replace that, um, yeah. you know, from the UK government. And this was really a decision to farm a bit less land um, and, and, and use that land to do something for nature, but also something where we can look after our own business a bit better, do something a bit more sustainable. Diver- yeah, it's a, f- a form of, of diversification, really, isn't it? Um, in, yeah. in some way, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, just, sorry, yeah, go on ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, you know, our business before we, we've done this, you know, very, very, you know, focused on, get, you know, getting income from some selling crops and then indeed the subsidies that come with that. Um, you know, well, well over 60, 70% of our business come from those two revenue streams and they they are very volatile because you're dealing with commodities which you know go up and down and uh, the common agriculture and nature and living yeah. living yes, beings <laughs> the weather, that, that'll get in the way as well um yeah. and yeah and then you know the rewilding has all these amazing things but people are really interested in it and they'd like to come and visit you uh, and that that provides an opportunity for us to to do something much more sustainable and diversified yeah i was going to ask there um you know, what is the history of the site? It's a family farm, right? Um, what what kind of business has it been um, going back yeah, over it's, the years? It's It's been a family farm. It's, it's been, you know, in the family for a while. And I, I guess I can speak to the last kind of 20, 25 years, which has been farmed, you know, pretty similarly to, to quite a lot of the UK, but probably a bit more focused on nature conservation than your than your average farm. We've always been in the kind of higher tier of, of various stewardship schemes that, that the government offers. Um, and we, we've, we've had that lens to what we do. But in many ways, we've, we've operated, you know, with the prevailing view of, of what's best. Um, and, you know, that view has um, been quite focused on how to generate, you know, as much food, uh, you know, uh, commercially uh, and, and operationally as efficiently as possible. Um, so that's that's what we were really doing for a long time. Um, so so yeah, it was it was sort of an agri environment focused farm. Um, yeah, yeah, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And obviously, with um, the kind of worrying times ahead, nobody knows really what um, what kind of subsidies are going to be there, or what kind of um, incentive to to um, look after the environment and biodiversity on farmland and traditionally I think as you've said before you know we have done a terrible job at um, maintaining or encouraging farmland wildlife so it's good to hear of uh, the farmers who you know really do take that as part and parcel of what they do and and that but um are you worried you know I think a lot of British farmers are very worried about what will happen now in a kind of post-Brexit plan there's some talk that some of the schemes will definitely try and maintain the same level of environmental protection and, and things. But what um, what kind of worries are there in the in the farming community around that? Well, I think the the worries amongst the broader farming community are, you know, quite quite severe. And you know, the, this this Brexit is a a huge, you know, point in time, kind of uh, 
kind of issue for, for an industry that was already facing a lot of pressures, right? So, you know, with, with low milk prices, um, you know, with, with incredibly low cost farming operations all over the world that can export to the UK and undercut us, uh, whether yeah. you know, it's Ukraine, Argentina, wherever. Um, so, you know, not an industry that was particularly uh, stable, um, you know, it was probably in long, long term decline, has had suddenly this huge um, kind of like financial pressure put upon it by Brexit. And I suspect that, you know, m- many farmers, and I can't speak to everyone, but many farmers in the UK by now will be pretty, really quite worried about the ongoing sustainability of their, of their businesses, first and foremost. And I think yeah. that's that's sad because, you know, for a lot of those people, um, it's not, it's, it's so much more than a business. And it's, it's a way of life. Um, it's their history as well, isn't it? History, it's a culture. I think that's what, yeah. you know, that beautiful book by James Rebanks kind of all told us about what it's really like to be a farmer. It's so much more than, than animals and running a business. Um, so I, I suspect that that really is playing on the mind of, of, of a lot of farmers. And that will be, that will have been true since, you know, since the vote in 2016. Um, mm. You know, I think we've, we've tried to be as positive as we can about the situation and taken the opportunity to think long and hard about what we want to do and begin the Wild Can Hill project because, you know, we think it offers us a way out of, you know, quite a tricky situation. But also it's a, it's an opportunity to do great things for local communities, for the environment. And actually, I think that that probably also applies at a national level. Um, and, you know, the the... the the, po- the, the policy environment is, is fluid. You know, the government's working on the environmental land management scheme. That's in consultation at the moment. I was going to say they're consulting the farming community about that and how it can work, right? Exactly. Um, they've had yeah. to pause it because of, because of COVID. Um, yeah. But that'll pick up again, I imagine, uh, when we're all out of lockdown. And, you know, but, you know this, this is a critical policy that has not been you know, published, you know, in, in any great detail, more than a sort of 20 to 25 page kind of discussion document. And this is yeah. going to come into effect in four years. Um, so a lot of uncertainty and you, you, you've got to feel like, you know, we, I just really hope that, you know, the policymakers and, uh, you know, that those with influence can, can put together something which, you know, can support farmers for sure, but also allows us to really change the way that we use land in this country because um, it's got to change quite, quite drastically if we're to have any chance of, you know, meeting our climate change goals, meeting our biodiversity goals. Really, Definitely, uh, yeah. Air and, wa- air and water quality. So it's, it's Brexit has precipitated this big challenge and this big opportunity all, all in one go. I was going to say, yeah, it's like there's pros and cons almost. I think it's almost a double whammy in terms of um, stress and uncertainty because we don't know what's coming. We don't know what the next, um, you know, environmental scheme is going to be in post-Brexit world. But also farming is facing a crisis anyway with um, young people not getting into farming and and kind of an ageing population um, of of farmers. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's another really interesting aspect. Um, It's something that we we want to work on on our project. We don't have a kind of an answer to it, but we're really conscious about how, you know, particularly now with, with the impact of COVID and, and everyone's lifestyles have just changed so much. You know, what is, what is like rural society going to look like, um, you know, after the, after the lockdown has eased, 
Um, I, and I think there could be some quite profound changes. And, you know, again, is, are, we, are we faced with, you know, another opportunity to, to redefine how kind of rural affairs, you know, look? And that, no, that includes, you know, whether there are enough jobs for young people in the countryside, which has been a real problem. Um, yeah, you know, I've heard, yeah. you know, commentators say that, you know, with, with DEFRA, with your DEFRA ministers, they, they come along and they, they focus on, uh, you know, the E, the environment, the, the F, the farming, but never on the, on the rural affairs. Um, and it's, again, it's another opportunity, um, you know, with, with the, uh, the, the, the policies that are coming to, to Parliament now, Agriculture Bill, Environment Bill. Uh, it's another opportunity for us to really look at, um, you know, what we want our rural societies to look like. And, you know, can we have, you know, lo- locally focused, um, you know, farming businesses doing good for doing good for their communities. And that, that's something we really want to try and become uh, in time. Yeah. So people and wildlife are one thing. Now you mentioned um, climate as well and our responsibilities towards that. But how, if you if people have, you know, to, people that have no idea um, how rewilding projects or farming can, can impact climate. Can you just give us a bit of a summary as to the benefits of um, the rewilding approach in that front? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really complex. So, I mean, I think what else, what I'll say now will definitely be a simplification of it. Um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you could take like a, you know, a, a standard kind of field that you might be farming in, you know, an arable part of the country. So somewhere in East Anglia, like we, where we are, you know, it's a rectangular field. And um, what, what we've done for, you know, 50 or 60 years now is effectively drive like heavy machinery up and down that field in, you know, in lines, um, uh, you know, with diesel engines. And we've used kind of machines to turn the soil over or cultivate it, right? So that's a plow or, or anything like that. Um, yeah. And every, t- every time you do that, the soil is, is, is holding carbon. It will release it into the atmosphere. Um, and that, along with some of the other practices that have been involved with commercial farming, um, and these, these are things that we're, we're trying to stop doing ourselves, and we've, we've actually cut a lot of them out. But, you know, using, using fertilizers and other inputs, um, using insecticides, which is something we haven't done for, I think, eight years now, uh, but, you know, using fungicides, all of that, when you keep applying that to your, to your fields and, even if you have, you know, every one in four or five years is a fallow year. If you do all of those things, the organic matter in the soil, these are little organisms um, and microbes kicking around in the soil, it starts to, you know, especially starts to die. Um, and the organic matter, it's not, it's not even something that we as a, uh, you know, as a species even understand that well, uh, but they, mm. it does pretty incredible things. Um, and it's something that, that I think, you know, Izzy Tree in her book draws out really well. But one of the things they help to do is, is help that soil to actually absorb carbon. Um, and so, so the difference is, you know, soil turning over is, is kind of releasing carbon, but like healthy soil with lots of organic matter is actually absorbing it. So, you know, for a starter, we're not going to be driving these machines up and down anymore. So there's, there's fewer emissions. But in terms of the soil itself, you know, once you give it five, ten years, it, it really starts to recover and then it's going to start sucking in carbon as opposed to releasing it and that is a really that's a really important like swing from emissions to sequestration to being that that sponge yeah sequestering effect exactly and that's why a lot of people say let's let's be wild you know one two three four percent of the uk because 
that's going to help us meet our climate change goals in 2050. Yeah. And I think people get hung up on, you know, the solution to climate change is plant more trees. And, you know, trees are a very large, visible part of our um, our ecosystem. But actually, it starts with the soil, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got nothing against tree planting. I think um, you know, it's a fantastic initiative. It's, it's captured the imagination of a lot of people in the, in the climate change movement. And actually, it, it is a tool for rewilding in many ways, you know, especially yeah. if you you know, upland giving it a head start in some cases, right? Especially, you know, in Scotland and Wales, you, you know, reforesting large areas is, is often the start of a of a big rewilding project. Um, for us, it's we're in you know a different situation. It's a it's a lowland farm, um, and uh, you know, arguably, you know, bef- before kind of humans you know started farming in this area, you know, five seven thousand years ago, it wouldn't have been a forest. That's what many academics believe. It would have been more of a kind of open mosaic of grasslands and, uh, and, you know, with some trees kicking around in pockets and, and on their own. And so that's, yeah. that's what, what we're really working towards when we try and return this to nature. It's, it's not to have a forest, it's to have healthy soil, which also absorbs carbon. Um, yeah. And, you know, lots of biomass in the form of scrub and bushes and some trees as well. Uh, but it, it's, not a, it's not a pure forest, as, as, as you say. Yeah, you mentioned Isabella Tree down at the Nep Estate, which is probably one of the the most famous rewilding projects uh, in the last kind of decade, I suppose, in the UK. Um, but I think that book is brilliant. Wilding, it's called. If anyone hasn't read it, I would highly recommend it. It's one of my favourite books last year that I read. Um, they explain very well the kind of um, turning that theory of closed canopy forest on its head and actually looking back to what the natural state of, of our land was. And it was dominated by herbivores that were keeping closed canopy forests at bay through, through grazing. Um, and I think Charlie Burrell's you know, history or, or upbringing kind of in Africa um, is quite interesting where he says, you know, these herbivores dominating the landscape creates this kind of like Serengeti effect. And that's actually um, what Europe um, would have looked like rather than the kind of traditional thinking around it being just a, one massive woodland, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I actually, you know, if, if you're if you're going to kind of look after a rewilding project, you 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 kind of need to read the the, the this Franz Vera book, uh, Great yes, Ecology, yeah. which is the sort of, I mean, it is an academic book for sure, uh, but it has some very digestible sections at the beginning and at the end on, you know, what what you know what the previous academic theories were on what Europe used to look like. And I know mm. basically said, it, you know, it was a closed canopy forest, of course, like, don't be silly. Um, and he does this amazing kind of deconstruction of, of that argument with all this, this pollen data and tree data that was we had access to. It was already there. And he says, well, that's actually, that's, that's just completely wrong and, and very compelling. And I think um, there's still debate there, but he's, he's probably right. Um, but he came up against a lot of criticism for that when he first came out with that new theory, didn't he? He absolutely did. I, I think you know that the some of the rewilding projects that you see across Europe now um, are starting to vindicate him. You know, with the reintroduction of European bison and, and the kind of yeah. the effect they're having. Um, you know, some of the some of the other kind of larger mosaic type projects where you have lots of grassland, but you you also have a lot of forest around it as well. Those kind of mixed habitats. They kind of yeah. look to me, you know, from my limited understanding of, of what of, of quite a natural system, um, you know, albeit, albeit we're still missing 
you know, unfortunately, you know, some animals did go extinct, some megafauna. But I think when you when you think about what could be there in terms of natural processes, most of the things are there, and the result you get is this kind of mosaic. Um, so we 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 you know we haven't done our own research or anything like that, but we we do kind of buy the the Vera theory on that. Um, yeah. And I think our own kind of local university UEA, you know, they in in supporting our the actual development of our project, you know, they they had done a lot of work on kind of the natural habitat at Ken Hill and shown that it was for a long time, you know, what we would call that wood pasture. So a lot, you know, kind of grasslands and scrub, you know, punctuated by trees and groupings of yeah. trees and little glades, um, you know, the woodland being, you know, the, the wood component there being trees there and the pasture being, you know, the kind of grass where large herbivores would be moving around and, and grazing. Um, and so we, we feel pretty strongly that that's, you know, what, what it, we know we'll be doing it right if, if that's what it starts to look like uh, in 10 years. Yeah. So. 10 years time, yeah. Time will yeah. tell. The site is still a farm, right? You're, you're still farming and you're a big proponent of regenerative agriculture. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I think we're, we're probably, I think you'll see more of these projects uh, in the coming years, but we're, we're probably one of the, the first rewilding projects in the UK to, to take a, you know, we're not rewilding all of the land that we manage. Um, yeah. In fact, we're, we're probably only rewilding, you know, 25% um, of it or so. Um, and I think that's that's part of our kind of wider belief that um, you've got to do, with, you know, with land that you're managing, you know, what society and people and, and the government need from your land. Um, and, there's no doubt, and I know the listeners of this podcast will agree, we have to um, look after the environment and biodiversity, you know, air and water much, much better. Um, and that is a key, that's a key kind of aim for our, for our overall project. Um, but, you know, members of the farming community and I, you know, will agree with a lot of they say is that we, we have to produce, you know, a good amount of food as well. Um, and People need to eat, right? People need to eat. And, you know, there's, there's definitely... You know, we definitely need to waste less food and we definitely need to, our diets need to evolve a bit. So they're probably a bit less, you know, meat oriented because that just takes up so much land. You need so much land to make a burger. Um, yeah. But uh, you always going to need at least some type, some some food. And so on on probably, you know, 1,500 acres or so or 2,000 acres or so, we're, we're performing is what you, what you say is regenerative agriculture, which I think, you know, really captures the essence of, of that type of farming, which is, it's not extractivist, it's regenerative. So you're not taking from the land, all the techniques you use are to actually to add back. So whenever we, you know, prescribe a, like, a management technique for, for a particular field, we'll be thinking about, you know, not just about the yield, which is, you know, how we make, how we make a living, but, um, you know, how we can improve the soil quality, like how we can get more pollinators coming in yeah. um yeah. you know how we can look after you know this farm and bird which we know like quite likes this type of hedgerow and that you know that sort of thing um and you know i'm 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 not the expert on on regenerative agriculture uh in our team there's a, there's a I work with a wonderful guy called nick padwick who who's who's like a real leader and an innovator on that front um yeah. and he kind of you know p- pushes forward the thinking on that but I can kind of explain, uh, you know, some of the things that we're doing, if, if that's like of interest. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
Yes, I mean, so, I mean, if you were to consider, um, you know, we have quite irregular sized fields, for example. Well, I think one of the things Nick has done is he's, you know, there's no point kind of farming these little fiddly triangles and awkward kind of polygons in the corners of your fields. He's just put, you know, made every field a rectangle and everything yeah. else around the, the outside, we've just left to become kind of natural wildflowers, for instance. Um, you know, we look after our hedges much, much better now. So you'll, you'll kind of see when you drive around the countryside, some hedges just get, you know, flailed to within an inch of their life. Yeah, we barely touch them. We just want them to, you know, nicely build, like, build a good base. Um, we do a lot of cover crops. We do things called overwinter stubbles. So you don't put, you don't ever turn the land over or plow it at the end of the year, and then it just sits there like barren over the winter. Yeah, you, you, leave, you leave the stubble over winter, but provides great cover. Um, and holds the soil together, prevents soil erosion as well, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is which is another really big problem we're facing. Um, and we do things uh, like uh, the kind of minimum tillage or zero tillage, which basically means you know you, you instead of ploughing the soil between crops, you, you use slightly different kind of machine and you just drill the seed straight in the top of the old one, um, and it kind of uh, you can do it in these very technology so precise now you can do it in a way where the you know that you can you can get the new crop to grow through the old one, um, and that wow. means you, just, you just look after your soil a lot, a lot, lot better like that. Um, and, and and you know, with, there's a there, there are these kind of like online tools you can use as a farmer to, to say, you know, if, if we if we do this type of management on this field, like how much carbon are we emitting by doing that? And Nick's all over this stuff, and he's he's kind of putting all of our inputs into these tools, and it tells you how much carbon you're emitting. And so we've managed to kind of build up a pathway down to try and get to net zero emissions ourselves um, for, for the area that we do farm, which is which is really cool. What's the timeline on that that you might hit um, net zero? It's well, what, I think what's I don't know if I can if I don't know if I know the the, the precise moment we'll hit net zero. Um, yeah. But what's fascinating is that with That's some quite. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I think Nick would know, but the, the the fascinating thing is with some quite small changes, you can you can achieve a lot uh, in the in even quite quickly. Um, so yeah, it's 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 hugely exciting. I mean, I, I imagine getting all the way there might be a struggle, but certainly there's some some big levers uh, that you can pull to start with to, to get to really drastically reduce your emissions. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, how difficult was it? I mean, one of the um, criticisms, I suppose, of, of rewilding um, with some people is that it's not realistic. Um, you know, we need food production. We shouldn't be turning over productive agricultural land to rewilding projects. We should be looking at more kind of upland or kind of marginal land for that. Um, but, you know, I think I think it do, you and I would agree it does have a place um, alongside um, traditional agriculture. How difficult, though, has it been switching from the the, the kind of traditional uh, active conservation steps that you would take as a farmer that is going to, you know, applying for um, subsidies from the Common Agricultural Policy and is doing active things in order to encourage, you know, skylarks or lapwings or curlews on their land or whatever to switching over to the rewilding kind of attitude which is you have to step back and let things go and see what happens and be almost passive and allow as you say a process driven approach to to um dominate 
How difficult yeah. has that been? Um, I th- I think it has its own kind of uh, you know challenges, um, and I think you I think you kind of alluded to, to it, it's you know it's less about what you're actually doing you know outside every day uh, on the farm. It's in many ways it's more of a kind of a, you know a mental, you're not doing. yeah yeah it's a mental jump um, to to let things go, and I think. Um, Certainly, what you know when NEP were starting off in you know 2000 2001, it sounds from the book they just had some some you know some 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 opposition or some people who didn't quite understand like just simply couldn't really understand what they were doing. Yeah, Um, well, they had an inflation of thistles, didn't they? (laughs) Exactly. Um, I think one of the reasons we're also like you know indebted to them is is that they've they've kind of shown how it all works. So. I think yeah. we, we kind of understood what we needed to do. Um, I think the the challenges that we had ourselves were, were you know, I mean, quite quite dull. A lot of um, you know, there's 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 kind of tax and like legal implications to to, to rewilding land. Um, you know, is the land still classified as agricultural land? And I think you know, people familiar with tax will understand what I'm getting on about there. But there are uh, you know, agricultural land is is well protected from uh, you know inheritance tax and things like that. There's, There's risks in doing the land and and then not qualifying exactly. as well for certain subsidies if you're not doing, isn't that isn't that right? Exactly, exactly. So I mean, um, what you know, one of the things that we had to kind of come to terms with is if you if you take your land out of agricultural production and eventually it becomes you know what the Forestry Commission would define as woodland. Um, yeah. And there's a kind of technical definition about how much of the canopy would would be, you know, covered by trees and so on. Um, you, you would have to perform an envir- environmental impact assessment to take that back and start farming it again. And that that environmental impact assessment, you'd almost certainly fail because uh, you'd have a kind of ten year rewilding project at that point, and it would be stuffed full of animals. Um, and so, okay, you, so it's almost, you know, yeah, cutting yeah. off your future options by allowing it to happen. Yeah, you have to you have to get comfortable with that, and you know the the, the way the land will change legally. And sure, you know, we we kind of have a five year break clause where if, if we really wanted to go back to farming, we could. But I'd be, I'd be very surprised. Um, and then you know, the other thing you've got to consider is uh, you, you've got to look after your your numbers. You've got to make sure that um, you know in five years time you'll be in the black because if you if you if you get that wrong then um you know the sustainability of your project is in doubt and you might not be rewilding at all and then you know why do it in the first place so those those are kind of the slightly dull like background administrative issues that that we had to grapple with um and i think you know as i said like we knew we knew we were going to get weeds we knew we had to build a fence we need we needed to get grazing animals at some point but it was those slightly dull decisions which which were probably the hardest uh when, when we were thinking about it yeah and i guess over the the journey there's probably just been lots of times where you would instinctively go to do something or put something on the to-do list and then realize no actually that doesn't fit with our new ethos yeah Maybe. i mean uh, yeah funny, funny enough we're having having conversations about it um only last week uh you know, it's it's only the we were just agreeing on actually the head the hedge trimming we need to do this year. We have a few roadsides, you know, that we look after the yeah. hedges there, um, and you know, you need to make sure that if there's you know there are trees that might look a bit dangerous, 
Uh, if they fall over, you want to go take those out. And we said, well, no one, no one's going there anymore. So let's we won't gonna, let's not cut the hedges, obviously, but let's not do it with those trees. Um, and you know, I think you, you talked about farmland birds, and you know, one of the key ways you know the countryside has looked after farmland birds in historically is by controlling vermin. Um, you know, we're having conversations like, well, let's 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 not do that in, in the rewilding area. And I think that's uh, you know that's um, you know, quite an important mental step for us. Yeah, it's it's not I mean it's not easy. I think like, you know, I've I have the benefit of of coming at it, you know, quite fresh. I'm I'm in my twenties. Um but you know, there are many people who who work with us uh who've been there for, you know, twenty five, thirty years. Um and, you know, you know, have become accustomed to you know, a way of doing things and uh, full credit for them for, you know, kind of listening to me and saying, what's Dom on about? And then kind of like really embracing it. Um, It was this little upstart. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I feel kind of bad about it. Uh, And then going on a podcast and talking about it. (laughs) Um, But no, I think, um, you know, know, even people driving down the road, you know, come to have expectations of what the countryside looked like. And you, you, you kind of uh, you kind of like breaking those down as you go, which is which is an interesting part of, of a rewilding project. Yeah, definitely. Um, you've touched on a few things that are going on there, but um, my big interest, obviously, is wildlife and the biodiversity side. Um, you're already you've started cataloging what species are present on site now, so that you can kind of track changes over time. And I notice on your website you've partnered with some universities and the local wildlife trust. Is that right? Yeah, so we're doing we're doing as much as we uh, as much as we can, basically. Um, you know, I I, uh, I I come with no kind of ecological background to this project, and it's been fascinating for me to learn, you know, so much. But what I what I understood early doors is that there is almost an infinite amount of kind of research and monitoring you can do, and we had some, you know, another kind of boring set of you know, meetings which happened in offices, we had a lot of discussions around how to best structure a, you know, biodiversity monitoring program to capture the change, uh, you know, in a in a rewilding project. Um, and kind of what, what we settled on was you doing, doing quite a lot on birds, you know, doing doing a, a variety of different bird surveys, uh, which which we've started to get, come in. Unfortunately, a few this year have been cancelled, uh, understandably. Yeah. And we had a we then had a, a big invertebrate survey done by a great guy called um, Graham Lyons. Uh, he writes his own blog. Uh, I highly recommend anyone to go and have a look at it. He's, he's what's called a, a pan-species recorder. So he oh, wow. has phenomenal knowledge of, uh, of species across different taxonomic groups. And these, um, these people absolutely astonish me with their brains and their how they retain all this information and the yeah. Latin names of every little bug and creature that, you know, can all look the same. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> incredible, incredible talent. Yeah, he, he, he'd kind of like go up to a, like a, a, a bit of dead wood or like a, a bit of heather on site and kind of, you know, sort of put a tray under it and give it a bit of a shake. And then just sort of invertebrates would drop out and he would just start naming things in Latin, like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And then, you know, it'd be like 20, 25 things. Like, oh, I've never seen that in Norfolk before. Uh, or, oh, I haven't seen one. Of and it was, it was, it was, crazy and uh, i think that was the invertebrate survey was one of like i think our favorites because um we actually we actually racked up a total of almost 900 which i think was 
the most that he had um, ever sort of the, the highest number of he, he'd he'd come across on a on a I survey with the, same, with the method with the same methodology exactly. Um, wow. So that was that was interesting for us because of the um, I think it showed that we had a a lot of potential for what we're doing, but b yeah. that what we did done historically, you know, wasn't terrible. Had paid we, dividends we, in terms of biodiversity yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like we hadn't been using insecticide. Um, so that was the that was some first bridge survey, uh, you know, and that's up on the website and people can have a look. Um, Great. And then uh, we've been we've been looking at our soils. We've been doing so, you know soil nutrients. We've done some really interesting stuff with vegetation. So then another thing that Graham does, he he goes to like a he went to a hundred little plots on the land. He drew like a sort of maybe it was four or five meter kind of circle a radius of four or five meters and literally yeah. kind of described with a very you know uh, standard methodology the vegetation in that space uh, and then he also classifies each kind of block into a kind of this, this national, type or something exactly it? the mvc national vegetation classification so yeah um, that, yeah. yeah so that, that's also great and we that, that'll really allow us to track how it changes um and then we've we've got a drone and we're we've done aerial mapping of a lot of the site and we've done what's called a fixed point photography, where you um, you go to the same place, you know, have a camera exact same angle, same settings, and just take photos over and over again, and kind of document the change visually. Um, and that, well, I think overall, the kind of you know, those are the specific things. But overall, what, we, what we've aimed to do is capture a good chunk of the, the baseline as possible, um, and then, but really with a view to making sure we can like tell stories about the project in five, 10 years time, you know, what are the, what are the species and, and sorts of metrics that we expect to really change? Because that's yeah, what... I say you need your kind of um, key metrics, KPIs, key performance exactly. indicators. Exactly. Um, so, you know, when, when people come to us in 10 years time and go like, what's the value of rewilding? So like, what is this, you know, we've, we've sequestered this much carbon you know, we've grown invertebrates by X percent, like this species, which is critically endangered, is here now. Well, those those are the things um, that are super important. And I guess... Identifying the changes, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and we've, we've just, you know, been lucky to have a great time, like, learning so much about it as we go. Uh, yeah. as, as kind of layman to, the, to this whole, you know, re, you know, research and monitoring kind of world and we've been lucky to be working with as you say like we've worked with uea uh cranfield university um and they're just you know loads and loads of experts have, have pitched into our project and that's we're just super grateful for that it sounds great yeah brilliant um obviously invertebrates you know you start with the soil then move up to invertebrates these are all like you know the base of every single food chain so having that those kind of healthy numbers and diversity obviously has a knock on impact further up the food chain so you've had particular successes with um farmland birds which are in you know massive decline historically since agricultural intensification i suppose and you know dawn of machinery and pesticides and um herbicides and things and kind of intense management of, of farmland not leaving much space for them but you've had remarkable farmland birds that are in decline nationally like gray partridge on site and um high high numbers of curlew you've got barn owls i've noticed on your um instagram so tell us about the kind of the kind of bird diversity that you're seeing there well, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's it's a funny one as you point out because 
you know, this it's we're in year two, two and a half of our of our rewilding project. So, you know, the birds that we have on site today, we couldn't really say hand on heart that's because of the re- the rewilding project. You know, the, the, that the, the benefits from that we'd expect to see in time. The, yeah. the farmland birds we have today are really a nice le- a legacy, you know, of, of what we did do when, you know, all around us, um, you know, commercial farming was was really taking off. And, you know, I, I don't want to point any fingers, um, but I think the, the, the you know, we, most farmers are just following, you know, the guidance they receive at the time about how to best farm and, you know, look after themselves. And, um, and trying to be profitable within certain schemes and adhering to advice and exactly exactly. that they were after right yeah so it's it's i mean it's 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 by no means you know farmers fault you you could never say that but certainly you know the the rise of commercial agriculture and that some of the techniques you described have led to like you know i think it's now 60 60 percent kind of reductions in in farmland birds uh farmland bird yeah yeah um and I think, you know, the things that we were doing when that was all going on is, you know, obviously we, we had to do some of them to stay competitive, but we, you know, we've, we've, we've always maintained pretty small fields. Uh, we didn't rip out any hedgerows. Um, we've always had, you know, big uh, field margins. So that kind of like decreased the efficiency of your farm. Um, and we found other ways to kind of keep up with the pack. Um, but it does mean that you actually are providing, you know, some habitat left for species, as you say, like English partridge, grey partridge. Um, and actually, that was a species that we, you know, when we were focused on really actively managing, we, we would go and count grey partridge, you know, ev- every spring and and September, August. And we'd, we'd, do, we'd, we'd drive up every arable field, you know, every third, every third sort of furlough. And mm-hmm. literally, it would take weeks and weeks every evening we'd be doing this. Um, because we really wanted to know if, you know, if the if the farming techniques we were doing, the weather that year had been kind to the English partridge population, because it's such like a, you know, a famous bird from East Anglia. Um, yes, yeah, iconic bird for that region, isn't it? Exactly. So we just really wanted to, you know, find out how, how are we doing a good job, um, and I think you know, we're lucky that we we kind of we've got to this point where, you know, I I I can I reckon that. You know, we might start to see numbers increase, you know, fundamentally in the long term because of our new techniques. We, we're lucky we've got to that point with the population intact, um, you know, and the same goes for, for curlew, um, you know, which are, you know, nationally very rare, but we, we're lucky we see them every day. Um, yeah, that's um, yeah. So do you have yeah. curlew breeding on site? Yes, we definitely do. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we haven't really discussed so far is, you know, the, the fact that um, part of our holding runs right up to the sea, uh, the wash, uh, on that kind of funny west west you know west coast of Norfolk that looks back towards Lincolnshire. Um, yeah. And there are some, some freshwater marshes there that we, you know, we raised the water level on uh, about, you know, 18 months ago. Uh, you know, started the work on that. And, to flood some um, of your land, is it? Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the, these meadows were, were much too dry and they weren't providing the right habitat for, you know, birds like curlew um and um you know they, they they were around we'd see them elsewhere there's there's plenty of places for them in in, in you know northwest norfolk to, to go and feed and breed um and they would often be you know come and sit on our fields and, and be feeding um but the marshes themselves just you know weren't really good enough to um 
you know, to support like breeding populations. So we, we raise the water level there. So that's a much more active management approach, as you say. Um, and this was the first real um, spring where it was probably wet. And uh, we've just seen, you know, you know, s- s- a, a drastic change in numbers there. Um, and heard that beautiful sound, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I, I've always find the, the, the call of the curly quite eerie and scary. It is a um, strange sound, yeah. Yeah, if you're walking along at night and you hear one, it's it's quite kind of ghostly. Um, yeah, but we yeah, so we we've seen a lot of them around, and I I, should, should, I mean almost certainly we'll be breeding. Um, and we we I mean I'm, I know my dad was out the other day and saw, um, you know, lapwings sitting down. You know, appeared to be breeding as well. Brilliant. So um, you know, really really exciting that you know some of those like classic kind of farmland and wetland birds are still. Still and red list birds, you know, of conservation, highest conservation concern. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. One of the um, first guests I had on this podcast was Mary Colwell, who's a renowned curlew conservationist um, and broadcaster. Um, so she will be very happy to to listen to this episode and see that you're you're farming the right way for her favourite bird. <laughs> Wonderful. I know that there are some um, some 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 good initiatives going on uh, right now in the whole kind of curly space and kind of trying yeah, to be getting uh, together to collaborate. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. The, the future for that particular bird is like, is not that rosy. And I think it's, it's, there's now a time has come where everyone's just going to get together and make sure that we do something proper to look after it. Yeah, that's it. I think they're very much in trouble in Ireland where I'm from. Um, myself and Mary set up a, a Facebook page two years ago, I think. And it was estimated then that the curly as a breeding bird in Ireland only had seven years left. Um, they're just wow. in catastrophic decline with um, land management and bogs being, you know, harvested for turf and things like that. So um, I don't know if we'll save it as a breeding bird in Ireland, but fingers crossed. People again, as you say, are coming together, different bodies and different organizations to try and help. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely a bird in trouble, isn't it? Yeah. So moving on from birds, um, another uh, kind of interest of mine is bats. You've mentioned you've got quite a few species of bat on site, yeah? Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't, I won't be able to give you the best answer to this question. Um, I mean, I know we, I know we have, uh, we've, got, we've got nine species of bats on site for sure. Um, yeah. And the one that I've been most involved with um, so far has been the barbastel. Uh, oh, which wow, you've got barbastel, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're super excited, um, uh, you know, just about that that species in particular. Um, They're one of the least common in the country, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. So, um, I uh, I mean, I actually didn't know, I, shamedly, I didn't know this to, to maybe kind of four or five years ago, but um, within our rewilding area, this sort of five, it's actually probably half of it is woodland. Um, and that woodland is, I think, actually contains the most significant kind of... Um, roosting population of barbastel bats in Norfolk, um, wow. which is really cool. And, it's, and I think um, you know, Norfolk's a pretty good place for, for bats anyway. Um, yeah. And we're not, we're not kind of designated or anything like that, but I've heard, I think, you know, lovely guy, the, the Norfolk barbastel study group called Ash Murray say that, you know, if you were designated, it's, it's probably internationally significant. Um, and, you know, you talked about kind of challenges of rewilding, um, one of the ones that we've had, which I don't think, you know, every project starts with is that, you know, within our rewilding area, we, we have some quite serious uh, sites of conservation interest already. 
Um, and you have to be really sure that, you know, letting nature back in doesn't cause any adverse effects. Um, yeah. You know, it, you know, it, it can, uh, we have to be honest about that. Um, yeah. you, you know, the, the, the kind of idiosyncrasies of like human involvement mean that, you know, uh, you, you actually have, you know, some populations of, of some animals su- surviving and thriving. Because of humans, isn't it? And what, yeah, exactly. How we um, land. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, you know, like urban foxes. Uh, and so, you know, you have to be, we also have a lot of arable plants is another thing. Um, and those, those are very early successional type kind of plants. And that's because, you know, if you farm in a quite sympathetic way, uh, you know, you, you leave enough sc- scope for these plants to grow, but you still disturb the soil once a year. So they, they, you know, they have an early successional habitat and that's why they're yeah. succeeding. So you have to be really careful. And um, it's, it's the same again with the bats. Um, you know, we've got this nice area of woodland that you know, t- particularly popular with barber styles. Um, and we've got to make sure that, you know, when we let grazing animals in there, they don't do anything, you know, to, totally to alternate micro exactly. habitat. Yeah. yeah. I think one thing about barber style bats is they, they spend a lot of time you know, when they, f- when they first leave the roost to go and feed, they spend a lot of time just flying up and down to kind of warm up, I think. Um, right. And they do that in quite like dense areas of woodland. Um, yeah. And so, you know, what we wouldn't want is for, you know, some of our densest areas of woodlands to, you know, to open up completely. Uh, yeah. Whether it's overgrazing or whatever. So we, we, we this is one thing we should be really careful about. It's balance, isn't it? Exactly. Um, and an interesting thing we're doing elsewhere on us so you know away from the rewilding area kind of across the road there's this kind of fascinating underground uh, i think it was it was a kind of old like um, a kiln that they, they used to um kind of far up and and i think they would, oh, yeah. they would they'd put in limestone in there i think and yeah. it, was, I mean, it was shut for probably 100 years now um but it's this kind of creepy subterranean structure and it's it's it's, embedding. it's a hibernation site is it for exactly. it's a it's it's a massive hibernation <laughs> site uh probably for the same kind of population of barbastels um, and do you have the local back group um surveying and going in and telling yes. you what's on site and things yeah yeah exactly so we, that's another bit of um I'm sure bring my architecture then if i come visit <laughs> yeah well i mean you must come and you you must bring it uh any equipment that you so wish uh yeah, definitely a lot. yeah definitely um north norfolk barbastel study group um actually ash ash murray who i mentioned earlier is also involved in that they've been helping us kind of keep track on our numbers but actually most importantly for our project identify where all the roosts are um yeah so that we can turn sure especially right we, Exactly. So we know we know where we want to make sure that the, any grazing or if we choose yeah. to, f- to fell a tree prior to, you know, the grazing animals come in to open up the canopy so it looks a bit more like wood pasture, we you know, make sure we've, we've mapped out every single roost with a kind of, yeah. uh, with kind of these steel pegs to make sure that we don't, <laughs> we don't go in and fell a tree with the maternity roost in. Yeah, that'd be disastrous. Um, now, the the most exciting newcomers to your site we have to talk about because very recently you have reintroduced a pair of um, European rodents, right? <laughs> yes, the, the uh, ca- Castor Fiber, Eurasian Beaver. Castor Fiber, yeah, love that Latin name. <laughs> I did a project yeah. in my undergrad degree in animal science on on Castor Fiber. So tell us, tell us what's arrived on site recently, then, Dom. 
Yeah, so it was it was the back end of March and it was kind of full, you know, coronavirus, uh, you know, hit, you know, all over the news. And, you know, quietly we'd been we'd put this project, you know, underway for a long time to reintroduce beavers. Uh, I thought you were going to say quietly we'd been beavering away. <laughs> no, yeah. it's really funny how many bad puns have, you know, have come up in yeah. the last weeks. Um, but so you know, we, we, for a year now, we've been kind of planning to reintroduce beavers. Which you know, if you're yeah. rewilding and you, and you buy into this idea of processes and you know, picturing a landscape where all the processes are reinstated, you know, the existence of this incredibly important you know ecosystem engineer. These are all the cliches now, but you know, incredibly yeah. important species are you know, is, is critical to that, to, to fulfilling that vision. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, quite early on, you know, one of the exciting things when you start a rewilding project is about, um, you know, uh, thinking what animals you're going to reintroduce. Um, and the beaver was right up there for us. And we kind of, we've gone through the, the bureaucratic steps and we got our license. Um, very sadly, the beaver is not classified as a, not, as a native species in, the, in, in England. Uh, at the moment, mm. it, it is in Scotland. Um, All right, which is a, which is a travesty uh, and something we're. I mean, our project is hopefully working to to sort of to change the the precise rules around that. But um, we did Why is that? historically they were in in England, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's in doubt. You know, they were they were common across the UK up until the sort of I think the extinct sometime in the 1600s. Yeah, um, and you know that many people believe that you know place place names such as you know Beverly. Uh, because of the abundance of beavers uh, at sites like that uh, historically, yeah. so you know, definitely a, a technically a native animal. The reason then that listed as non-native now is because if you did have, you know, wild beaver populations, um, you know, many people would get scared about the the effects of those um, because of you know we call them ecosystem engineers, but you know, fundamentally they they do make a bit of a mess. Um, I think yeah. in Bavaria they've shown you know where they have quite high population of of wild beavers that actually like it's very manageable but you know we as a community you know kind of need to get over the fact that you know they might be you know they might you know take down a tree that we quite liked uh or you know whatever they, they get up to um so yeah they're, they're technically a non-native species and we, we we got a license to release them we, we built a large enclosure we think it might be the largest in england it's about 50 acres uh, a little more wow. yeah and um we initially planned to introduce two pairs, uh, and maybe have a third pair later. But um, and are they? Are you getting them from Scotland, where they're breeding readily, or where are you getting them exactly. from? Exactly. So the, the two options, if you're uh, if you're kind of like looking at this, are, are from wild populations in Scotland, where yeah. I think you know, lots of beavers, you know, live in the wild and have a great time. But there, there are in some areas they kind of um, come into uh, conflict with, uh, you know, farming communities Farmers, and. Yeah anglers and whoever uh you know for the kind of reasons i said that you know uh they do, they can they can make a bit of a mess and people are also concerned about the effect that they have on fish stocks even though the evidence is kind of says they can do good things i was going to uh, say the evidence is to the contrary in a lot of cases isn't it exactly and, um, and making a mess is one thing but on the flip side they're also mitigating for flood risk in certain areas as well aren't they by holding yeah. water Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, I'm the I'd be the first person to like name, name all the benefits that the, the beavers can yeah. bring. Uh, I'm a beaver advocate too. <laughs> um, yeah. One reason or another, there there are places where they are better off being trapped and transported to 
uh, release project. Right release point, yeah. um, and that's what we've done. So we, we our, our, our two females have come from wild population on Tay side. Uh, and we were hoping that they would be joined by two males. But um, as the virus kind of spread and lockdown was implemented, the lovely lady called Rashin, who, who was trapping uh, for us to, to actually get the beavers out, out of those um, ecosystem was 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 curtailed. So that that, that, se- that trapping season was is now over. Um, yeah, and we we couldn't get the pairs, but we, we brought the females back. Breeding season is it that you can't trap during the breeding season? That's or? right. Yeah. So I think you know from from maybe last week, two weeks ago onwards, it's it becomes there's quite a high risk of trapping a pregnant female and, and putting her yeah. in the which is which is not what you would want to do. Um, and so the trapping season, I think, reopens mid August. Um, okay. that, so that, your your two girls will have to wait a little while for their yeah exactly uh, <laughs> exactly uh, they're both kind of two to three year old females they're unrelated um, so they've been released into separate parts of the enclosure they're probably you know blissfully unaware of each other um, the habitat there is is very good you know lots of water and deciduous woodland for them to kind of strip bark and feed on. So yeah. they, they, they won't be moving too far right now. They'll probably be quite happy in quite, you know, relatively, you know, confined spaces, just going about like building up their territories. Um, and we, we know exactly where they are. And we're, we're videoing them with camera traps every day. And I've seen your trail cam footage. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I have to make do with, you know, foxes and badgers in Ealing, but uh, I can dream yeah. of beavers. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't know you know, how much affinity I had with, you know, the vast parts of the British population who put cameras out uh, in their back gardens to see what turns up. Uh, it's, now, it, it's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, now that we've got the beaver site, I, I literally, uh, uh, we, we're checking the SD cards like almost every day to, to, to find yeah. out what's going on. Um, and yeah. And you've, just, na- you've had a, a naming competition, I saw. We had a naming competition, yes. I uh, had some fantastic suggestions. Uh I think one, one notable commendation was to to Boudicca, who is sort of famous Iceni kind of uh, warlord uh, who resisted yeah. the Romans, female warlord resisted the Romans. Uh, that, that unfortunately lost out to Ebb and Flow or Ebony and Florence. Is what we've gone with. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah I thought that was very clever. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, look, um, we're running low on time, but um, I'd love to come and visit if I can when these um, restrictions lift. Um, what do you think the, the future holds for um, British farmers? Is too broad a question, but British farmers, I suppose, are landowners that are interested in rewilding now. What would you say to them? Um, does it have a place or can it have a place on, on every British farm? Or um, is it something that you know only farms of a certain scale can undertake? Well, I think an uh, interesting question about scale. I think, you know, rewilding, like, it, 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 it's not a question of, like, does it have a future? It, you know, it really must have a, a future as, as part of the, the, the macro land use in this country. So, yeah, may, maybe it might not be appropriate, you know, to, to have it everywhere. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd probably be the first person to say that your productive farmland, you know, let's, let's farm there. We need food. But let, let, let's do it efficiently and, and sustainably when you've got yeah. much, much less productive farmland. And, and that's what we had, very sandy soils, like full of weeds. We really couldn't, you know, make a profit out of it. You know, why, why are we farming that? It's, it's such hard work. 
um, for, for such little output. And that's what, that's what we said, like, let's, let's rewild this. And yeah, we've, we've, we've gone for a, a thousand acres and, you know, the, 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 the most diehard of rewilders will say, well, that's not, that's not a scale landscape. Um, mm. you know, let, let alone someone's kind of like back garden or like a, a few, a few acres they have. Um, but, you know, if, if we if we start really over talk, the terminology, don't they? Yeah, and, and it's just a you know a, a conservation project. Yeah, but I, I think you know those those principles of like stepping back and letting like you know processes take over. You know those those apply to much smaller areas of land, uh, especially if they're well connected um, to others. And I think you know. It, you might you might maybe you don't call it rewilding, but those principles definitely have a place, you know, all over the countryside, farms of any size, roadsides, and so on. And I, you know, I I, I definitely, you know, I, I wouldn't get held up by the by the kind of really hardcore definitions of rewilding. Let's 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 you know take what's appropriate from it and apply it in the English context. You know, very densely populated country. Um, yeah, that's it. It shouldn't be this kind of exclusive members club, really, should it? I think the principles of, you know, behind it and what we, what every person with even a small bit of land can do um, is is a valuable thing to promote, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I mean we've got to, we've got to cherish these landscape projects like you know Yellowstone or the Carpathian Mountains, the Danube Delta. You know, those are yeah. phenomenal landscape scale projects, and like we we should never lose sight of what those have over places like Wild Ken Hill is, you know, they, they, they have things that we'll, we'll, we'll never be able to do. And particularly if you think about, you know, apex predators and, and really large herbivores, but let's, I don't think we should also, you know, use that kind of, you know, real academic diehardism to say, oh, well, we can't think about rewilding anything else. You know, that's going to, this yeah. is a really important movement uh, for, uh, you know, the countryside, for the public, for the government to get right, because it's going to help us all, you know, with with climate crisis, with the biodiversity crisis, you know, with yeah. with, with public health even. Uh, and so let's not let's not like put the brakes on it. Let's let people kind of you know run away with their imagination and, and rewild their gardens, rewild the roadsides. I think that's like fantastic, and we should we should totally. be supporting that. Yeah, yeah. That leads on actually to my to my last question. You mentioned um, kind of the social benefits and uh, and that. What's in store on that front for Wild Ken Hill um, in the next few years? Because you, you mentioned when we talked before, it's something you're looking into. We haven't fully embraced just yet. Yeah, I mean, in, in truth, it's it's a work in progress. Uh, I think what we what we want to be is is like is radical and innovative in how our project can serve local communities. Um, and at the moment, what we're focusing on is is building a sustainable, like lo- locally focused, like business in a way. So what, what yeah. we want, to, what we want to do in the immediate term is is just provide, you know, more um, you know professional and volunteer opportunities to local people. And I think that's particularly important, you know, with with the amount of jobs that you know are being pulled and people being furloughed. Um, you know, I know we have like four or five volunteers working for us right now. Um, and I imagine we'll, we'll we'll have some full-time roles in the future too. So that, I think that's like a first preliminary step. But going forward, yeah. I think we, you know, we want to do a lot more with education. We're already starting with local school visits, but we want to scale that up massively. Um, we'd like to do more kind of adult courses as well. Um, and I think I think like, you know, we want to try and develop like really strong partnerships with 
you know, local parishes who are, you know, generally very supportive of the project so far, but just seeing what the project can deliver to local people. And, and I think, you know, as I said, complete work in progress. We, we need to speak to them, understand like, you know, what, what they might want from this project, whether it's access or, or whatever, or, you know, sponsorship for specific initiatives, all that sort of thing uh, we want to look at and, and try and not just create something that's, you know, uh, uh, almost like a, you know, something to look at. Away, almost. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's respect nature and, you know, you know, we leave it the space to do what it's got to do, but let's also make this a, a project for people. Yeah. Education is really important, isn't it? Especially, I think, you know, when where your food comes from and how it's how it's produced. I think a lot of people are just they don't really know, you know, where their food comes from and what the impacts are on it the country's climate and and um, biodiversity um, on yeah. farmland, especially. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 crucial. Um, we're doing a great project at the moment called Wildlings, uh, where a lovely lady called Michaela who lives locally who's actually nannied a bit for me when I was younger um, oh, yeah. yeah is she's she's bringing I think they're probably between maybe like five and ten um, oh, it's down to a kind of forest school and they're learning kind I was of early. Say it's like the forest school kind of approach yeah exactly the bits of kind of like forest craft and you know how to I wish that was around when I was a kid <laughs> yeah so um, and that, that, those are the sorts of things that I think are, are really important to having a like a vibrant social dimension to to a project like this starting the next generation yeah Mm. so where can people um find out more info dom your website is um is it wildkenhill.co.uk yeah wildkenhill.co.uk come and have a look um we are we are blogging there you know at least twice a month with some quite like detailed stories about what's happening on site um we're on instagram at wildkenhill underscore norfolk uh, I love the Instagram. That's where I, I came across you first. Some great stuff on there. Yeah, it's um, your social. Tell them I uh, was complimenting it. Yeah, well, shout out to to Ness, who's been managing our social extremely well. Um, and yeah, I think some really like up, uplifting content on Instagram to come and like have a look at. Uh, and particularly like the, the clips of the beavers uh, as they've been kind of messing around in the new enclosure is fantastic too. So yeah, come yeah. come look us out. Super jealous of your your beaver trail cam footage. Um, I think we've talked obviously in the background, and I won't say too much, but I think definitely uh, rewilding in some form is is in my future. Um, in my after I leave London, I think that's definitely on the cards for me. What advice would you give um, just to, to finish on for a future rewilder? Well, I, I try I try and be inspirational and say, you know, I think let's let's be really ambitious and think like boldly about what rewilding can do in this country. Um, I think like, you know, people, people at Rewilding Britain are doing a good job of like setting the ceiling quite high, you know, four or five percent of the country. That, that's wonderful. Let's, let's really think like, think big. And I think if, if you're, if you're anyone there like thinking about whether to rewild or not, let's, I think let's like, try and identify that land, which is, you know, not very productive for farming, isn't a very high, you know, conservation interest right now. And would make a really big swing to go from something which is, you know, not doing much for anyone right now. It's not growing loads yeah. of food. You know, there's, there's, it's, we're not looking after the soil there, whatever. And let's let's turn those places and make them really special and restore them to like their, their kind of former glory. That's great advice. Yeah. So choose choose the right place that'll make as much of an impact as possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's kind of our approach, which is let's not rewild all the farmland that's that's good for farming. Let's farm yeah. there, you know, sympathetically, but let's let's rewild the stuff where you can't farm, you know, for, for love nor money. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. Well, Dom, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's one of my favorite topics. I think we could probably go on for three hours, um, but other people might get bored. <laughs> um, so thanks again for your time. And definitely uh, once these restrictions lift and I can make my way up to Norfolk, I will be there with bells on. Well, you'd be most welcome. We'd, we'd love to have you. Great. Thanks a lot, Dom. All right. Take care now. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast with myself, Sean McCormick, produced and edited by Thomas Dinas. If you're enjoying the series so far, I would really appreciate it if you consider donating to our Patreon link below. That will really help us out with producing the podcast and covering the costs involved. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.